We are about to begin our panel discussion for today. As you know, I'm Jennifer Wolfing, and I am here to introduce our moderator, Sam Hyatt. Sam Hyatt is the managing partner at Hyatt Hyatt Callen and Goldberger PC. He served as the judge of Division 38 St. Louis County Court in the 21st Judicial Circuit for over 20 years. He is a native Missourian, born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, and attending University City School, St. Louis University undergraduate and law school. He was an assistant prosecuting attorney in St. Louis County, a private practitioner specializing in trial practice before he became a county magistrate. Importantly, he was a founding member of the St. Louis County Family Court. He is now extremely involved in the community when he has the time with all of those activities. He is involved boasting memberships in the Missouri State Gaming Commission, Tour of Missouri, the Republican National Lawyers Association, and the Federalist Society. So please allow me to introduce our moderator, Sam Hyatt. Did you say boasts membership in the gaming commission? That's something I get condolence cards about. <clears throat> well, uh, welcome and to everyone um, today for this uh, uh, discussion on um, debating the role of the Chief Justice in judicial selection. <clears throat> um, today we have, as, and are honored and grateful to have as panelists, uh, first, Mr. Bill Plackey, who's scurrying about. <clears throat> Bill is a uh, Vice President with a Fortune 500 company in Missouri and a member of the New York and Missouri Bars. He formerly ran <coughs> the mergers and acquisition legal side of a global 1,000 company, telecom uh, uh, company, based in Europe and served as the general counsel of a technology investment company. Bill was an associate focusing on cross-border M&A with 3600 with a, the 3600 attorney uh, firm of uh, Clifford Chance, the largest law firm in the in the world, uh, <clears throat> and in New York City with the 800 attorney firm Dick Steen, Shapiro, Morin, and Oshinsky. If I'm pronouncing that correctly. Builds degrees from King's College, London, St. John's University School of Law, and the University of Dayton. He has served as board member and shareholder representative on several public and private companies in Europe and in the United States. Bill co-founded Better Courts for Missouri and is a past president of the St. Louis Lawyers Chapter of the Federalist Society. Mr. Plackey advocates judicial selection reform. <clears throat> Next, uh, with more than 30 years of political and legal experience, Uh, Mr. Woody Kozad ensures client interests are protected and enhanced. Uh, taking this from the uh, website, you're still protecting and enhancing, Mr. Kozad? Good. <clears throat> It's the enhancing part, I'm sure, that is the interesting part. At the state and federal level, prior to founding the Kozad Company, uh, Woody practiced, if I may call you Woody, Woody practiced law with Stinson, Morris, and Hecker for more than 20 years. Woody served as chairman for the Missouri Republican Party from 1995 to 1999. Under his leadership, the party coordinated key campaigns to shift control of the Missouri dele congressional delegation to the Republican Party for the first time in the state's history. Mr. Kozad argues against judicial reform. 
And next, Tom Walsh <coughs> has over 25 years' experience as an attorney advising corporations, boards of directors, officers, and shareholders of companies on a variety of complex matters. He also represents clients with respect to public policy matters. This representation includes matters pending before Congress and the executive branch of the United States government, as well as matters pending before the Missouri legislature and various Missouri state agencies. Mr. Walsh is a St. Louis attorney and a member of the American Bar Association, the Missouri Bar, and the Bar Association of Metropolitan St. Louis, where he served on the executive committee for a number of years. Tom Walsh will argue in favor of judicial reform. And last, but of course not least, as principal and founder of R.J. Share and Associates and as principal in the lobbying firm of Share Winter, LLC, Randy Share, I, I hope I'm pronouncing your name, we're not acquainted, Mr. Share, uh, Randy Share brings 32 years of experience in political and government to his uh, 50 clients. He holds both a bachelor and master's of arts degrees, uh, degrees in political science from the University of Missouri and Lincoln University. He has served two terms as president of the Missouri Society of Governmental Consultants, the group that is primarily responsible for representing lobbyists on issues of lobbyist registration, reporting, and ethics. He currently represents the Missouri Organization of Defense Lawyers, the Missouri Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, and the Justice Institute for Missouri. These are our panelists for this morning, and I believe uh, uh, we're leading off with, um, has it been decided? But, um, all right. And um, very good. And as far as uh, time, uh, all right. All right. I will. Uh, I'll warn you at uh, each at uh, two minutes if that's okay with you guys. All right. Well, thanks, Sam. And uh, I'm, we're now in your courtroom, so uh, I'm sure you'll be diligent as the time. Um, as a preliminary matter, I'd like to point out that all views expressed here today are my own and don't represent any current or past uh, employer. Uh, this, uh, this afternoon, I'd like to review what I think are just two of the many misrepresentations about the reform effort that have been. Uh, leveled as against this. Um, the principle that we are arguing for is, is quite simple, and it was best said by uh, uh, Justice Wellesley of the Missouri Supreme Court some 25 years ago, and that is a simple proposi proposition. Lawyers should not be appointing the judges before whom they try their cases, and judges have no right to appoint their colleagues or successors. That is the heart of the matter that we go to here today. Um, first, I'd like to review the uh, misrepresentation that the, uh, the reform proposals are radical and uh, that the process is not, the current process is nonpartisan. Uh, second, I'd like to overview the consequences of a judicial selection process that is dominated by trial attorneys. As pointed out by the American Tort Reform Association Judicial Hellhole Publication, giving the Missouri Supreme Court a, quote, dishonorable mention, unquote, and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce ranking Missouri in the bottom third of all states for its court's anti-business approach. Additionally, the Wall Street Journal, the leading business publication on the planet, has issued three editorials on Missouri's form of judicial selection process and calling for more openness and accountability. 
I urge to you that when the Wall Street Journal, the American Tort Reform Association, and the U.S. Chamber of Commons, arguably a very powerful triumvirate, all call for reform, we should at least look at our current Missouri plan to determine whether or not it can be improved. My fellow panelists here today, while, while we, we all, I think, are interested in the same thing, and that is the best judges on the courts, I think we get there in a very different way. And I would like to propose to you that there are ways to improve the Missouri plan, and we'll outline some of them briefly today. First, I'd like to do a bit of an aside. We've been criticized, the pro reform people have been criticized in the press for a number of things, one of which is, is that uh, the latest one I saw was not really a group. Um, what, what is a group? I guess someone defines what a group is. Um, but let me just take an aside. Today, out of the General Laws Committee at the legislature, uh, a pro-reform proposal was passed out of the General Laws. It'll go to Special Laws next and probably look to, to floor vote. That was a bipartisan um, initiative. And we've been joined in the reform efforts by the Black Caucus. And I'll, and I'll point out to you why. I'd just like to do a little bit of an iteration. Can anyone in this room tell me how many African-American or Hispanic members of the commission there have been, the Appellate Judicial Commission, over the last 70 years? Anyone? Anyone? Not you, Jim. You know the answer. Is it 10, is it 10% maybe? How about one? One. So if the business publications don't appeal to you, then appeal to your sense of, of social justice. The second part about that is, does anyone know how many minorities have been elected by members of the Missouri Bar to serve on the commission in 70 years, all seven commission spots? Zero. Zero. That's why the Black Caucus has also joined our reform efforts. Because they know that as a matter, if you put accountability into the commission, you will get a more representative commission. So, as I said, that would be the first of a number of sides, but I'm happy to, uh, uh, happy to, to know that the Black Caucus has joined the growing chorus of people calling for reform. So, first off, I would like to dispel the myth put out by the trial attorneys that they've tried, where they try to paint the reform efforts as some type of extremist movement. Nothing could be further from the empirical facts, and I'll talk a lot about empirical facts today. If you could please look at the handouts that I handed to you today. Sorry, it still says the uh, Chamber of Commerce, but uh, I didn't get a chance to update it. just like to show you, because a picture is worth a thousand words. There's a sliding scale on slide four of, of public accountability into the judicial selection process. Now, there are about 28 to 30 states with a Missouri plan. All the Missouri plan says is that there's a merit commission that does the initial selection. The composition of that merit selection plan is what we're talking about. Missouri is on the extreme side of the least of all accountable systems. The least of all. Together with Alaska, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska, and Wyoming. The proposal by Representative Cox that passed out of the committee today merely moves this two states more to the middle. What we would not advocate, and no one advocates in better courts for Missouri, is that we go to an Illinois-style partisan election. That is another canard that's been put out there. We do not, will not, support electing um, judges to our highest courts. 
and I'll stand next to anyone who wants to oppose that reform. I'd rather stick with our existing plan. What does the Lemke proposal? Lemke proposal actually puts it more to the middle as well. Again, much more representative. And I would again look at the facts. I have some handouts and you can go to our website, NUMO Plan, and it has a summary of all 50 states and the types of plans they use. So first I'd like to just get that out and say this is not an extreme proposal. It puts it more to the middle. The proposal by Representative Cox, as I said, merely moves it a little bit more to the center. I think Tom will, will talk more to that. This is hardly a gigantic leap, but certainly one that creates a much more moderate system. Representative Lemke's proposal, which I personally support, would align Missouri more with New York, Connecticut, Delaware, and the federal system. Truly, these are not, not extreme proposals. It would, be, it would also be important to note that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce ranks Delaware as the number one state in the country as far as judicial appointments and quality of judges go. Again, no amount of trial lawyer spin can avert these facts and proposals before this commission uh, to modify the commission are reasonable. And they're based on existing systems and more moderate than the extreme position advocated uh, to stay in Missouri. Second, I would like to dispel the myth that the current process is based on merits and not on partisan politics. Many people have criticized the reform proposals by saying that they would interject politics into the judicial selection system. Whether one says that is the pot calling the kettle black, the point is one can only charge that criticism to the extent that the current system lacks an interjection of politics in the system. Again, focus on the empirical facts proves that the assertions can be are nothing more than spin without substance. Slides 5 through 7 of the deck that I've handed out to you discuss this issue on a number of fronts. I would like to point out the empirical facts that demand an exclamation from the opponents of change. Over the past 12 years, there have been six appointments to Missouri Supreme Court. As you are aware, under the current system, the Judicial Selection Commission nominates three candidates from which the governor must pick one. So there's 18 possible nominees for these six vacancies over the past 12 years. Is it 12 to 6, one party over the other? No. It is 17 of 18 with one party. To argue that this system is not based on partisan politics is a stretch of the truth and an insult to intelligence. I urge you that it does strike all bounds of credibility that, that say that politics is not a major factor in the judicial selection process. The response by the opponents has been that the judge loses his or her political identity when they put on a robe. I urge to you that this, too, is laughable and an insult to intelligence. Time does not permit me to point out the countless other areas in which the, the premise that the current process is not political is completely flawed. I urge you to just take a few minutes and look through the slide deck. Now I would like to turn to the consequences of a judicial selection system, which is dominated by... Matt, the personal injury bill. Trial attorneys as a whole, plaintiffs and defendants, make, make up less than 10% of the entire Missouri bar, and per personal injury lawyers less than 7% of the bar. They make up less than one quarter of 1% of the entire population of the state. Yet, by contrast, personal injury lawyers and plaintiffs class action lawyers control directly and indirectly, 60% of the commission that appoints judges to the highest courts in the state. 
Let me repeat. Matter, who you must have a number of personal injury cases tried to join in order to join that group, and the plaintiff's class action lawyers make up less than one quarter of one percent of the population control more than a majority of the commission. But what is this? Well, why is MATA so interested in this control? There is simply no other group, prosecutors, criminal defense, corporate lawyers, academics, there is no other group other than the personal injury and class action lawyers that stand to benefit from the outcome of a case. That group controls the commission. That is a special interest, I argue, with a special interest in making sure sympathetic judges are on the court. Again, no amount of lobbyist spending can change that facts. The facts are that the three lawyer positions on the judicial selection for the Missouri Supreme Court are not just for, for choosing judges on the Missouri Supreme Court and the appellate courts are not just members of MATIC. All three of them are current or former members of the Board of Governors of MATIC. So it's the MATIC leadership. Steve Garner, who just went off the commission in December, when his term expired, even wrote an article that it has to strip your opponent naked and make him beg you for money. That is the person selecting your judges to the highest courts. He brags about that on his website. You can Google it, you can go to it, and it's listed prominently. So, and additionally, Jill Shuren, one of a uh, uh, supposed non-lawyer appointed by Governor Holden to one of the non-lawyer positions, is married to uh, Leyland Shuren, who is one of the most successful class action lawyers in the state. I've also handed out to you a list of the political donations by commissioner. It's in, in your materials. And you'll notice the supposed non-political process of all the commissioners that are on the Appellate Judicial Commission. Not one of them. And these are the ones elected by the bar, other than Jill Shurek. You'll notice a, 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 a absolute trend in their contributions. And it's all the Democrat Party and what one may consider uh, some very liberal causes. So if you had a truly non-partisan commission, one would expect some amount of diversity of whether it's contributions or political party affiliation or at least some type of, of fair balance between the types of candidates that are forward to the governor for a selection. And I, I urge you, you don't see that. There's something broken, there's something wrong. Well, how does it continue to operate this? Because people haven't been engaged and the press isn't allowed to be engaged in the process of judicial selection. And that, to me, just seems absolutely abominable that the Missouri Supreme Court has created a rule that the commission, which it governs, is not subject to the same rules and the same sunshine law as the every other government commission. Why? Why would the Supreme Court, the arbiter of the law, the one who's supposed to stand tall as the beacon shining, says, well, the commission we administer doesn't have to abide by the same law as anyone else. There's something special about this. There's nothing special about it. It's the appointment of judges to the third co-equal branch of government. And I, and I urge you that it is appalling that uh, the Supreme Court creates these types of rules. Reminds one of something that happened in, when uh, Newt Gingrich came into uh, the House in 94. But he said, you know what, one of the first things we're going to do is we're going to make sure all the laws that apply to the rest of the country apply within these doors. And I would urge you that at least the Supreme Court ought to consider that. <clears throat> I've often heard, too, that, that uh, 
well, there's no real cases of judicial activism. I've handed out uh, an excellent paper written by Professor Bill Eckhart of University of Missouri, Kansas City, and John Hilton, who's with the law firm of Patton Boggs, who's now, uh, uh, who was at the time a clerk to Judge Benton. And just look at pages 13 to 20. This leveling of, oh, there's no judicial activism, there's a list of about 50 cases there, probably 20 of which would be arguably uh, some form of judicial activism, two of which, Shamel versus Treasurer of State and Sumter versus City of Moberly, are two of the most egregious. And in those cases, uh, Shamel, I'm not going to go into the facts, but basically the Supreme Court ruled that a disability doesn't cease with death. What is the consequence of that? Taxes are going to be raised on corporations in Missouri to replenish the second injury fund. That's going to be a consequence. The other one on City of, of, of Moberly is where uh, uh, state employees were given the right to collect to collect the bargaining rights, even though uh, two years after uh, the constitutional amendment was passed, giving uh, private employers employees the right to collectively bargain. The Supreme Court then having been, it been fresh in the mind about what the debate was about, said that that, that particular constitutional provision did not uh, give public sector employees the right to collectively bargain. And even uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was the sponsor of the legislation, had said that it was, was not to extend, not the sponsor of the Missouri legislation, but of the nationwide legislation, was not to extend to public employees. So you get the Missouri Supreme Court, I would urge you, engaging in very... Uh, uh, some very marginal opinions and <clears throat> addressing the specific point of why not the Chief Justice on the court. Voter ID case last year. Uh, two judges in the Missouri Supreme Court recused themselves as the, um, the uh, person who was arguing the case happened to be a former judge who sat on the panel that appointed them. So you have the largest voting rights case uh, in probably the last 40, 50 years in Missouri, two judges recused themselves because that judge just stayed in their selection. There is a consequence to that. U.S. Chamber of Commerce uh, wrote about Missouri, quote, the price tag of tort litigation for the entire population of Missouri is more than $5.1 billion. Quote, an unfair legal system sucks the life out of a state's economy. It affects business expansion, affects jobs, and takes money out of consumer pockets. Wall Street Journal... Wall Street Journal, uh, quote, however nobly the Missouri plan began, the current process is doing no favors to fairness or to justice. Missouri's courts are every bit as hung up in politics as they are in other states. The difference is that in Missouri, the process happens behind closed doors. A democratic system of choosing judges requires a transparent process and accountability for those who make the choice. Thank you. Okay. Um. Which of you gentlemen? My name is Woody Kozak. I'm a conservative Republican. I brought a gavel here. I thought Ed Martin was going to show up, and I need something to hit him with if he got too frisky. This particular gavel, though, was I'm very proud of. It was given to me by the Federalist Society, National Federalist Society, for lifetime contribution to law and public policy. And then maybe because I now represent the Mobar and an aggregation of Republican trial lawyers, they want their gavel back. But uh, Judge Kozinski gave it to me, and I'm not giving it back. I've been a conservative since uh, my father put a Taft button on me when Taft was running against Eisenhower in the Republican primaries in 1952. I'm still a conservative. I do not invoke affirmative action and racial quotas as a reason to change our judicial system, because I'm a conservative. 
I don't invoke democracy or the influence of the people on our judicial system because no conservative does that. We are not enamored of democracy. We don't swoon over the word democracy. That's what the liberals do. Conservatives don't do that. The founders certainly didn't do it. They drafted a constitution that provided for the indirect election of the president through the Electoral College, which Hillary Clinton wants to get rid of, using arguments very similar to some of the ones we're hearing about the nonpartisan court plan. Indirect election of senators, a judiciary that served for life, and an amendment process that's well nigh impossible. So they, the Constitution that our founders drew up, our entire system of government, is not based on the idea that the will of the people is supposed to, to influence or control everything we do. Uh, it's nothing of the kind. And we conservatives, least of all, are enamored of that idea. And yet, the, the single argument we hear the most is the argument that, oh gee, there are too many lawyers in this process. If you count the, the judge, chief judge, you get uh, on the appellate commission four people who have law degrees to three lay people selected by the governor. Well, the first thing I would, I would say to that is, uh, using the doctrine of originalism, I guess, let's go back to what the founders, which in this instance would be the generation that adopted this plan, wanted. That was 1940, and back then, before progressive education had done its all it could, the average voter in the state could actually count to seven. Not only they could count to seven, they could count to three and four before they counted to seven, and they knew that four was more than three, and that four was a majority of seven. Now, I'm not sure that's true any longer, but back then it was true. The so-called greatest generation, which adopted this plan, knew when they voted for it that they were going to have four members of the bar, if you will, one of the bench and three of the bar, and that the lawyers were going to be elected by their fellow lawyers, who in that day, by the way, probably constituted a lot smaller percentage of population than we do today. Can't throw a rock without hitting a lawyer today. Back then, there, there weren't all that many lawyers around. And that small group, the people of this state chose and consented to have select three half the members of this appellate judicial commission. And they consented that the fourth member, who would sit, presumably sit in the chair, would be the chief judge of the court. Now, unlike liberals, we don't think that consent wears out. We don't think, you know, the Constitution is a living document because the consent of George Washington is no longer important. The consent of Woody Kozad is more important than the consent of George Washington. We don't believe that. We believe, as Edmund Burke said, in a democracy of the dead. We believe that our ancestors who made this system for us still have a voice in it, that we are bound to regard their opinions as carrying some weight. The liberals don't believe that. They think that whatever we need right now, or think we need right now, trumps the wisdom of past generations. An argument that essentially is what we're hearing today. We've got a little problem here, so let's just wreck the system the way the quote-unquote would be the founders in this situation people who adopted the system wanted. In 1940, they not only adopted this system, five years later, the politicians and office holders, kind of realizing what the people had done and cut them out of this, brought it back to the people and said, oh, you don't want to cut us out of this deal. You want us in here. And they, they gave the voters another chance to sort of get it right. And the voters didn't say no to the office holders. They said hell no. And they overwhelmingly voted to keep this system which they had adopted in 1940. 
They were perfectly happy with it after five years. I would argue we ought to be happy with it still. We ought to be happy with it. Let me, a couple of things I'll just deal with that were brought up. Number of African Americans on the commissions. What about the number of African Americans on the bench? If we're going to engage in this racial uh, quota rhetoric, if you use the standard normally used when doing that, it is who, what is the percentage of eligible persons for the job, you know, qualified for the job you're talking about, and what's the percentage who hold the job? Well, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but we ran them quickly the last time we had a hearing and this subject came up. And it's, it's like 5% of the lawyers in the state are African American. And I forgot the number that are, of percentage of judges, but it's way above that. In the language of affirmative action litigation, African Americans are over, African American lawyers are overrepresented on the bench in this state today. And that is, by the way, I believe, yeah, exclusively where they are selected under the nonpartisan plan. Only one African American judge has ever been elected where judges are elected in the state in its history. It was an accident. African-American had the same name as a very popular lawyer was running, and, and, and the voters didn't know what they were doing, and they elected the African-American, threw him out at the next election. And that's the only time a black person's ever been elected judge in the state of Missouri. The nonpartisan court system, on the other hand, now has African-Americans, in a language I hate, overrepresented on the bench. Now, to get back to this system, this system works pretty well, folks. The people chose a mixed system. When they put the governor in it, it isn't that, you know, that they didn't expect politics. You don't put a partisan elected governor into a process like this and think there isn't going to be any politics in it. That, that isn't, I think, what the people expected. Uh, when you give him appointments to three of the seven spots, potentially, although they, they gave him less than that when he did it, he could only serve four years back then. So he didn't have as long to get his lay appointees on. When you give him a chance to appoint three of the seven members of the appellate commission, you're expecting some politics in this process. And you get it. And there is politics in the process. There is, in other words, some response to the prevailing public philosophy of the judiciary that the people have acquiesced in when they chose their government. The result of that is the Federalist study, which Mr. Plackey has pointed out, that, that uh, uh, was done in Kansas City shows, is that if you get 12 years of Republican governors, Bond, Ashcroft, Ashcroft, surprise, surprise, the court moves to the right. Now, we don't call that judicial activism. We call that getting it right. But they move, folks. They move to the right. And that's what the Eckhart study shows, that this court moved to the right after 12 years of Republican governors. Not too far, but it moved to the right. Then guess what? The people elected 12 years of Democratic governors. And I am shocked to report to you that after 12 years of Democratic governors, the court moved to the left. Two minutes. Uh, the court moved to the left. It didn't move very far to the left. If you go through those cases that Eckhart shows you, you'll find that there's a move to the left there, but it isn't very dramatic, just as the move to the right wasn't very dramatic. And I suggest to you that means the people of this state are getting what the people who initiated this in 1940 wanted. A system that is only indirectly responsive to the will of the people, slowly and somewhat responsive to the will of the people. The judicial branch, whether at this level or the federal level, is the branch that is the least democratic, and it's supposed to be. It is, in fact, in some instances, anti-democratic. 
Its job is to say, no, you can't do that to the elected branches when the Constitution or the law requires. And that's not a very democratic thing to do. We, they would in some instances say no to the people if the people did something the Constitution, or purported to do something the Constitution didn't permit. Today, if I could just wrap up, I'll just take almost as many minutes as, as Bill has. Um, today, if you look at the appellate courts, they're almost exactly, the appellate judges are almost exactly 50% Republicans and 50% Democrats. So one more Democrat than Republican. After 12 years, 12 years, and now 4 years. The most candid complaint I've heard was openly made, which was, this system, uh, from Brian Stevenson, the chair of the Judiciary <coughs> Committee of the House, he said the system worked under Bond and Ashcroft, it worked under Carnahan and Holden, and then when Governor Blunt came in, he suddenly couldn't get what he wanted. I think that on one, on one Supreme Court appointment panel, that's true. He didn't get what he wanted. I would also say he didn't do a very good job of taking advantage of the office of governor to get what he wanted. And that's just my view as a person who's worked around this system for a long time. I've seen it done better. And Governor Ashcroft did it better. Governor Carnahan did it better than Governor Blunt did. Since then, he's been doing pretty well. And a lot of Republican names have come up on those panels. And he's been able to pick them. Finally, a word about just Judge Breckenridge who was denounced as not really being a Republican in all this when her name was on that panel. Well, she's been up there just a little while now. But she was supposed to be a tool of Judge Stiff. If you will go back and look at the votes, you will find that has not, at least on the rather short record we now have, turned out to be the case. This system is giving the people of Missouri what they wanted when they adopted it in 1940, which is a system that is slowly, slightly <coughs> responsible to the will of the people but not directly or quickly. Thank you, Mr. Cosette. And uh, next we have uh, Mr. Scher. Oh, I beg your pardon. Thanks, Dan. Mr. Walsh. <laughs> <laughs> well, Woody, my old friend, uh, we want you to keep that gavel here at the Federalist Society. We want stimulating debate on both sides, and we don't expect our members to be in sync um, on any particular issue. Um, we just want good, spirited debate, so let's get... Let's have some more of that. Some of you in the audience might ask, you know, why is Tom Walsh excited about changes to the Missouri Nonpartisan Court Plan? Bill Plackey mentioned two cases um, that I think are very important. The redefinition of di the word disability and the inclusion of public employees in the definition of collecting collective bargaining when at the time that that provision was passed and enacted in the Constitution 50 years ago, the public employees were specifically excluded, or were not included in the right to bargain. So the Missouri Supreme Court took 50 years of precedent and threw it out the window. But in addition to that, over the last few years, and this, these, this, uh, these cases are in the um, handouts that were given to you, you have cases like Shipley versus Cates, where the Missouri Supreme Court allowed state funding for Planned Parenthood in clear contravention of the legislative intent. Missourians Against Human Cloning versus Carnahan, where the court upheld Amendment 2 ballot summary language as fair and accurate when it clearly wasn't. And the Voter ID Act that Bill um, also mentioned that was thrown out by the Missouri Supreme Court. But I suspect you'll, you all know that the United States Supreme Court is reviewing 
um, the issue of requiring voter ID, and I think that they will find that the Missouri Supreme Court got the issue wrong. <clears throat> I, what I saw was a Missouri Supreme Court taking the words of the legislature and twisting them beyond any reasonable comprehension. When, he, when such judicial activism exists, how can one call the process that results in the appointment of Missouri Supreme Court judges nonpartisan? I think Bill's accurately demonstrated the role that politics has played in, in the selection of Missouri appellate judges and particularly members of the Missouri Supreme Court. Reflecting on this, I said, what can you do? First, I looked at who could be held accountable, and I found no one. So, major, first major disappointment. Second, I tried to examine the process of appointment for the last six Missouri Supreme Court judges, and all I found were closed doors. The only information available to the public were the names of the judge, of the persons selected to the panel by the commission, and then the name of the judge picked by the governor of the state of Missouri. No other public record, no other public scrutiny. It was impossible to determine who had applied for positions, how decisions had been made by the commission with respect to the selection of a panel, and how the governor went about making his or her selection. So I decided something needed to be done. The public's awareness of the impact of the judicial selection process had to be raised. We conducted polls that showed that a vast majority of vote Missouri voters did not understand how judges were selected in those areas that didn't have judicial elections. Most Missourians thought that Missouri had in place a selection process very much like the federal model where the president makes an appointment or a nomination and the Senate gives its advice and consent and either confirms or does not confirm the, the nominee. In fact, it was a stunning 87% of Missouri voters who admitted that they were unaware of the makeup of the judicial selection, judicial commissions. When questioned further, only 10% of Missouri voters felt that the Missouri bar should wield the influence that it does in the judicial selection process. And that's before voters were made aware of the uh, article published by Mr. Garner, who was a member of the commission, how, how to strip your opponent naked and make them beg you to pay you money. I, suppose, I, I posit that if the voters had known about that, it would have been dramatically less than 10% who were happy with the selection process. So after that reflection, what next? I discussed the matter with many other lawyers, judges, former judges, businessmen, doctors, and other ordinary citizens and voters of the state of Missouri. It was my belief initially that the best solution was to enact a, a constitutional provision in Missouri that would mimic the federal system, allow the governor to appoint, allow a Senate Judiciary Committee to question the nominee in open committee hearings, allow that person to then go before the full Senate for confirmation, and get as much information out in front of the public as possible. It is because the public trusts its judges that it has confidence in the court. When the, when the Missouri voters determine, as I believe they have, because of the influence, or because of the impact that they are having with respect to proposed changes currently in the Missouri legislature, um, they are losing confidence. They want a better model. They want to be more involved in the selection process. They want somebody they can hold accountable, and they want the trans they want transparency in the process. However, after further discussion among uh, a number of people, it was determined that Missouri probably wasn't 
ready for such a wide-sweeping change at this time, so I decided to get behind legislation that would make small, minor, but very, very important changes to the Missouri Nonpartisan Plan. Let me share with you the specifics of this legislation. That's the HJR 49, which, as Bill said a few minutes ago, was reported out of committee this morning and will take its next, pro next steps in the Missouri legislature. There were several bills introduced in the legislature, and it wasn't just a bill that I got behind or a bill got behind or any one particular. We had members of the Missouri legislature who watched the appointment process for Judge Breckenridge and said something is broken. They talked to people who applied to the commission for the for nominate for nominations to the panel who felt they were treated very poorly. Very short trip. We had a chief justice who went down and testified before a committee of the Missouri legislature who admitted that she broke the rules of the judicial of the, of the Missouri Supreme Court in the process of nominating just Judge Breckenridge. Something was obviously broken and the legislators recognized it. So we're, we now have HJR 49, which is progressing through and which, and as Bill said, the Black Caucus has now joined in the reform movement and I believe that they will get behind HJR 49. What does it do? First of all, it applies the Missouri Sunshine Law to the Judicial Selection Commission. There's no reason the same principles of openness and transparency that apply to the rest of Missouri's various commissions should not apply to the process whereby we select the highest officers of our judicial branch. That does, the, the bill does recognize that certain information needs to be kept confidential. Everything won't be in before the public. For example, personal identifiable information would be excluded, so address and personal information would not be disclosed, nor would the state police background report um, or the final discussions of the members of the commission. Second of all, it removes the chief justice from the seven-member appellate judicial commission that nominates judges. This, you might remember from Bill's talk, um, takes what Chief Justice Welliver at the time said back in the 80s, that the Chief Justice shouldn't be selecting his or her successors and colleagues. The presence of the Chief Justice currently gives too great a foothold for the legal community, which is dominated by the plaintiff's bar, matter to the process. The Appellate Judicial Commission would still have three lawyers to add input from their perspective as practitioners, but without the Chief Justice, the Commission would now have a balance of laypersons and lawyers. Give the Governor the ability to reject panels of nominees and, re and request a new panel. The original Missouri Plan, as enacted in the 1940s, allowed the Governor to reject the panel. This ability was later taken away um, after the Missouri Bar sponsored a, an amendment to the Constitution which Took, off, took away from the governor the right to reject a panel. The language that was on the ballot at the time did not include the language that said that the, that the governor could reject a panel. It was snuck through. Um, finally, we would make the terms of the appellate judicial commissioners subject to Senate confirmation so that a governor can't, uh, has, there is a check and balance on who the governor can appoint to the judicial commission. Change the terms from six years staggered to four years beginning on January 15th of the gubernatorial election year. This ensures the accountability of the governor. Missourians will know who appointed what commissioners and who to hold account accountable for bad judicial appointments 
There won't be any more midnight appointments by outgoing governors. And those are those we think, or I think, are minor changes to a, a plan that is known around the country, but almost everywhere that it has been adopted has been modified to some extent. One last thing. In only three states is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court allowed to vote as a member of the commission. It's Missouri, Alaska, and Wyoming, and that's it. Everybody else has taken away that right you had. Thank you, Mr. Walsh. Thank you. Uh, I'm pleased to be here. It's, it's interesting that uh, uh, I, when Jennifer called and asked me to be on the panel, I told her that I am not a lawyer. Uh, I am a lobbyist. I represent clients in Jefferson City. I've been actively involved in this issue for uh, some time. Is that better, Clark? I'm sorry. Uh, and it, it's a pleasure to be on this panel today. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the empirical facts. I'm going to talk about the politics of this uh, because I think that's uh, that's mostly what we're what we're looking at, what we're concerned about. It's interesting also that we're on the panel today with. Uh, with respect to the joint resolutions that were that were filed and heard uh, at the major two being 49 and 52, 75% of all the witnesses that testified in support of, of those resolutions are on this panel. Uh, the, the other 25% of the individual would be uh, one of uh, Better Courts of Missouri's uh, contract employees, uh, our consultants. Um, I'm actually a recovering dairy farmer. Uh, I, I got out of school, went back to the farm, but I was involved in politics and, and uh, became, became a lobbyist in 1977. So as we look at this, uh, I, I think in representing my clients, the Missouri Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, the Missouri Organization of Defense Lawyers, as well as the Justice Institute for Missouri, uh, we're not opposed to reform. Our standards are, as we look at each proposal, is number one, does it inject more politics into the system? And number two, does it adversely affect the pool of applicants that might be available for consideration that would go to either the appellate commissions or the uh, judicial commissions, whether appellate or circuit, uh, and then obviously forward it on to the governor? It's interesting. I, uh, Senator Well, or actually uh, Justice Welliver was, was quoted uh, I was lobbying when, when uh, Senator Welliver was elected from Columbia. Senator Welliver couldn't get along with his senators, uh, never reached a leadership position in the Missouri Senate, uh, was appointed to the court to get him out of the Senate, uh, and is absolute, and, and incidentally is the only justice on the Missouri Supreme Court that was passed over by his colleagues for chief justice. And the reason was he didn't, he didn't get along very well. Uh, so the quote that is used by Justice Welliver is actually taken uh, from him right after he was passed over uh, because he never had the opportunity, he was never given the opportunity by his colleagues to serve as uh, a member of the Appellate Judicial Commission. Uh, when we look at the proposals, uh, it was interesting today, we, we've heard in all the hearings that the process has been hijacked by the plaintiff's bar. We heard that term uh, several times. So the question then becomes, why would the defense bar be supporting the plan and be concerned about some of these issues? 
some of you in the room, and I know I know a few of you, been active with groups that we've we've been involved in, uh, know that I've been involved in 11 uh, of the Appellate Judicial Commission races over the last 22 years, electing the lawyer positions. In those 11 races, Model won four of the Appellate Judicial Commission lawyer position races over a MATA candidate. MATA won five of the races over model candidates. And in two of those races, the two organizations supported the same candidate. And it's interesting that two, those two that we both endorsed and supported are currently on the commission. Although their practice may be, in some cases, mostly plaintiff's law, in one case it's about half plaintiff's law, and the other half mediation and defense, uh, we supported those candidates because we trusted them as, as lawyers in their community that could be, uh, that could be trusted in, in putting together a panel of judges, or excuse, uh, judge applicants to go to the governor, uh, that could be reliable and they would be fair and impartial. Uh, if, if this process was hijacked by the plaintiff's bar, I think we would have a much greater concern about that. Uh, but we, but we don't. We have won some of those elections. We've lost some of those elections. It's interesting that the, the, the proponents of reform are looking at a snapshot of the last, particularly the last uh, Supreme Court uh, selection process. But it's some of the case, some of the selections prior to that. But in the late 80s and early 90s, when we had three defense lawyers, three John Ashcroft appointees, public member appointees, and it's CJ, who was appointed by uh, John Ashcroft, as the commission. We didn't see the Democrats talking about uh, the process being broke. They're not getting, they're not getting their applicants. They're not getting their judges. We didn't see that. It's going to ebb and flow. The Eckhart uh, report shows you what happens. That report, uh, that study, uh, only covered uh, a period of time when obviously the court, as Woody said, moved slightly to the right. Or excuse me, to the left. Uh, it didn't go back and look at the years prior, the 12, uh, the 12 years prior to that, uh, when, when, as Woody contended, it did move uh, slightly to the to the right. Uh, it was also mentioned that the the present uh, proposal, HDR 49, that came out this morning, has the support of the Black Caucus. Uh, I seriously question that. Uh, it's interesting that we had a we had a dinner for the Black Caucus uh, about uh, seven days ago or eight days ago, uh, where a substantial number of those members of the Black Caucus, in, including others, uh, have have signed on and, and are very concerned about this process. Uh, they ascribe more to the uh, AJS study uh, that shows that uh, uh, minorities fare much better under the merit selection process than they do under other selection processes. Uh, the, the participation of, as you will, uh, the Black Caucus uh, would include uh, one state representative from here in St. Louis who filed a proposal drafted by her husband, who happens to be a lawyer and a former member of the legislature. And I don't know how many of you know Albert Walton, but I have two fond memories of Albert. Uh, one was when he filed the bill that said that any legislator that served in the legislature for eight years could sit for the Missouri Bar. Um, that didn't go anywhere, obviously. But the second time was when he was standing on top of his desk the last night of the session, about ten minutes to midnight, and waving his amendments, yelling at the speaker, wanting, wanting recognition. 
those are some fairly vivid memories. But that's, uh, Elbert is the one that drafted the, the, the HDR for Representative Walton. Uh, I would also suggest that there's very little, if any, of uh, Representative Walton's HJR embodied in HJR 49. Uh, it, it, this, is, this continues to be a moving target because the, 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 the proponents of reform took Representative Walton's proposal and then created a, an initiative petition and has now filed uh, two initiative petitions with the Secretary of State. Uh, which, to those of us that look at elections and look at ballot structure and everything else, really give us no signal but the fact that they would be interested in the election of the Supreme Court justices. Two minutes. Uh, if you look at the structure, and I see a head shaking over here, if you look at the structure of that ballot, it drives the voter to the first two choices. And then you would have a runoff. The first two choices are the election of the Supreme Court judges and the appellate judges. So it really would drive us to no other conclusion than that is the purpose of that joint resolution as well as the petition. I'm also surprised with respect to uh, the openness uh, and the comment made regarding the Supreme Court and its, its rules. Uh, the, the Supreme Court changed their rules uh, within the last two months uh, to subject the commissions to the same standards as the uh, open meetings law in Chapter 610. Uh, we have supported that. We, in fact, are the ones that took it to the court and suggested that might be a change. I was surprised that Mr. Plackey didn't recognize that because he happened to be in the gallery when Chief Justice Stiff made the announcement under State of the Judiciary, and he happened to be, and I, I applaud him for this, he was the first one to applaud uh, when the Chief Justice announced the new rule change. Uh, one of the other changes we've recommended is with respect to the retention, uh, that has been attacked by the, by the proponents as, as really not meaning much. One of the concerns is that the public does not get full review of the, of the analysis of the judges. And we would suggest that Missouri do something like Arizona does, and that is publish that, at least get that out to all of the voters. Thank you. Sure. Um, that brings us to uh, questions. Uh, If any of you has a question, please uh, feel free to come to the mic, or if you have a loud, booming voice from where you sit. Yes, sir? Well, I can assure you, uh, as my wife will point out, um, she wishes this stuff stops really soon because it's worth Nothing but putting the head on a plate, so I receive zero compensation. I'm being, uh, I'm retained by the Missouri Bar to work on this issue. I also represent Missouri Republican Attorneys for Civil Justice, with plaintiff's lawyers, about 110 of them, and all very loyal Republicans because while being kicked in the pocketbook, they continue to be Republicans. Um, and uh, so I'm paying on both those counts. There's I take the implication of that question to be that if you paid, you're not maybe quite as sincere about what you're doing. And when people ask me why I represent a, plaintiff's, a group of plaintiff's lawyers, I have a standard response which I hope you will patiently listen to. They came to me, well first they came to me and wanted me to be one of the lawyers on the tobacco case, the state of Missouri, and told me that if we succeeded, which we probably would, I'd get $100,000 or something like that for the rest of my life every year. 
I turned them down. As a matter of principle, I thought the suit was a crop, not to put too fine a point on it, and turned it down. They offered me $100,000 to represent them for four months opposing tort reform. I turned it down because I thought we needed tort reform. When I turned them down, I said, you know, when they're through passing tort reform, every insurance company in the state is going to be in the legislature with a bill to screw their insurers. And I hope you'll come back and retain me to work with you to defeat that. And they were kind enough to come back after court reform was passed. And I've been working with the Missouri Republican Attorneys for Civil Justice, mostly fighting overreaching by particular businesses and insurance companies in, in the legislature. And I've enjoyed doing it. My principles aren't for sale. Uh, and anybody in the room has turned down more money than I have for principles and argue with that. But I, I, that's quite a bit of money, and I, I only do go through that self-vindication because one of the people who's not here today working on this literally looked me in the eye and accused me of, quote-unquote, going to the other side. <coughs> and uh, that isn't what's happened. Well, I was hoping to get my parking ticket validated. <laughs> <laughs> but that's about it. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes, sir. I would actually stand right next to him. What do you know? I've had this conversation along with a number of others. I think you hit it at one of the one of the. The biggest long-term problem we've got is right there. Ninety uh, percent of the judges in the last two retention cycles appointed judges under this plan. Ninety percent of them have never been in private practice. If you go back about 10 or 12 years, that number was 40%. So you can see the trend. We don't get that many applicants for the Supreme Court, the appellate courts. We've got 30 for an associate circuit judgeship right now here in the city of St. Louis. What is happening is that people are coming in at the associate level. Then the next panel is all judges to go to the circuit level. Then it's all judges to go to the appellate level. Judge uh, Governor Blunt was faced with a panel for the Supreme Court of three sitting judges. I have over and over said to legislators who support change in this plan, I got a change for you. No more than two sitting judges on a panel. This is becoming a career track, and you're not getting the greatest lawyers in the world down here at the associate level. And as they start up towards the top, we we will wind up with activist judges someday. You got a lot of public defenders, legal aid lawyers getting on at the associate circuit level. When they get to the appellate level, you'll really get some activism. My final point on that would be this. One of the restraints on judicial activism is intelligence. Wolf, Teitelman, and Stiff, whatever you think of their opinions, you disagree with them, they're very bright people. And they have to look in the mirror in the morning and convince themselves that there's some legal discipline to what they just wrote. When you get somebody who's not bright enough, they don't, they don't understand that. And they just think they put down whatever they feel like is the right thing to do. And, and we are working toward the day when we're going to have a bench full of people like that. And the fundamental problem is we're not paying enough to attract the best lawyers out of private practice. Actually, one Woody, other, I hear what one you're other reform, by the way, is to raise the retirement age to 75 so you can appoint people at a later age and, and keep them on the bench longer. Woody, I hear what you say about the the applicants, but the Supreme Court did leak out the list of applicants last time, and there were eight 
plethora of very highly qualified private practice lawyers who were applying for that seat on the Supreme Court. They, the, the, pan, the commission could have picked three very highly compensated private practice lawyers had they chosen to. They completely um, ignored those people. I, I would say this. You're, at the Supreme Court, we don't have a problem. I mean, you're going to get good lawyers to apply to the Supreme Court. But I'm telling you, down at the lower ends of this thing, we're getting staffed up with people who've never been in private practice, and they have a... You stay on the bench long enough, you're all obviously building a credential for promotion to the next level. Can I, Sam, can I take a second? I'm glad you brought up the recommended appointment, because that actually highlights another flaw, because I haven't heard anything sort of... I tried to go through some facts and really bring out some of the problems with, with the current process, and all I heard was, well, it wasn't what they, the founders intended. Well, the founders wanted the federal model... And in 1940, the people of Missouri actually had accountability because up until 1976, as Sam points out, the governor could reject the panel. There was no doubt that that governor, by being able to reject that panel, would be held up ultimately accountable. But this summer, what, what happened? What was the what was the thing that really made people uh, uh, very angry about the process? You had the 30 applicants for the pool, and then this commission meeting in secret put two Democrats and one Republican forward for the Supreme Court vacancy. Now, it is a truism, whether there's a Democrat or Republican, whether that's Missouri or any other state, that a governor of one party it will be loathed to appoint someone from the opposite party. That is a truism. So by this commission, according two Democrats and one Republican, they de facto made the choice. That doesn't mean that Judge Breckenridge maybe wasn't the best one out of the whole state of Missouri, but the fact of the matter is the process was corrupted because that commission chose who they wanted to serve on the Missouri Supreme Court, not the elected officials. There was no way, there was no way that the people in 1940 who adopted that intended that to happen. In fact, it didn't happen until 1976 and couldn't do it. Now, what happens with Judge Breckenridge? Why was that such a problem? Eh, say, okay, so he holds his nose and does it. Well, the one that I think really slapped down at the, at the governor's knees, I'm, I'm supposing, is that her husband, who's a plaintiff's lawyer, had given to the governor's opponent in the gubernatorial election just prior to that. So imagine, you're the sitting governor. This commission gives you the choice that you, we know you're going to choose Judge Breckenridge. And oh, by the way, yeah, her husband gave to your opponent in the, in the election. Have a nice day. Come on. That is a corruption of the process. If I could offer a different view, uh, now, Woody addressed this earlier. This was the first time, and I've only been doing this for 25 years, watching these appointments, working on these appellate judicial commission elections, and, and, and our trouble has been to get the corporate attorneys involved in this. For the last 15 years, probably the last seven of those elections, we've had a concerted effort to get the business groups to talk to their lawyers, to get the corporate counsel uh, involved in these elections so we can elect good lawyers on those commissions. We've had a terrible problem getting cooperation or any action at all within the corporate council, the corporate community, and getting, uh, in urging their member, their lawyers to, to vote. But it, but I got off track. Let's go back. Let, let's focus on this election, this, this last appointment process. This was the first time in history at least in, in my history, 25 or 30 years, that we had bombs thrown at the Supreme Court and at the Appellate Judicial Commission 
where a public official went out and urged the establishment of a of a website of, a, of another part of, of another outside group, creating a website for the sole purpose of, of throwing bombs at the Appellate Judicial Commission, set up billboards around the state in all of the Appellate Lawyer uh, Appellate Judicial Commission members' districts, urging people to call them on the activist issue. Uh, the, 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 the chief the staff, or the chief of staff of the governor, getting more press than the governor for a period of time. It's the first time this has ever happened. So I would suggest you put yourselves in the in the shoes of the commission members, and their their responsibility is to send up the three most qualified uh, applicants to the governor. Let's let's forget party. Some people can't seem to do that, but let's forget party. So you, you now, the commission has had the media beating on them. They've got a website beating on them. They've got they've got uh, billboards up in their districts telling the public to call them on activist judges. So what would you do if you were concerned about the media taking shots at you again for sending up a political appointment? You'd probably send the three most qualified people that you could send. I would suggest that you take a look at their qualifications. The three judges that they sent up, the three members of that panel, were the three most qualified applicants with respect to circuit and appellate rep, uh, experience. Actually, three of the top four in terms of total years on the bench, but the top three that had experience on both the circuit and the appellate bench. Why would they do this? So that, that that panel is above reproach with the media. Because you've just had all these public relations bombs thrown at you. I just offer that as an alternative to this suggestion that it was all set up politically and they picked two Democrats and a Republican and forced them to go a certain way. I think if the press gets a hold of this, they can, and, and I like your, I like your grid here, so thank you. But, so that the press can't throw, throw bombs at them again. This is the first time it has ever happened. We didn't see that with, we didn't see it with, with Joe Teasdale. We didn't see it with Kit Bond. We didn't see it with John Ashcroft. We didn't see it with Mel Carnahan. And what would they do? My contention is that Governor Blunt could well have gotten, or probably would have gotten, a slightly different panel had we not had all these bombs thrown across the street at the Red Brick Building. So, so this is where reality approaches myth again. So slide eight in the handout um, that this that this last applicant pool was the best of all people. He's already narrowed the field to say that it was the best of the lawyer candidates up. So let's skip the uh, twenty non. Uh, I'm sorry, best of the judicial the judges that applied. So let's skip the twenty plus non judges that applied. Just take a comparison. Judge Nanette Baker, who made the panel. Lowest bar rate of any appellate court judge in the 2006 retention election review. And uh, low, in the bottom 20% of all judges that were rated in the 2006 uh, judicial election. She was, uh, uh, compare that to Judge Hardwick, also a Democrat, also female, also minority. So we've, we've held status quo for all the uh, outside factors. Top, top graduate of uh, Mizzou Journalism School, Harvard Law School, uh, more trial experience than Judge Baker, 
and same political party, race, etc., etc. So, let's say just on a pure compare judge X to judge Y on the objective factors. Nanette Baker was not put under because she was quali more qualified than Judge Hardy. There's just no way one can come to that conclusion. What could be the conclusion? Well, perhaps Judge Baker aced her interviews and Judge Hardwick fell down. How would we ever know? Maybe that's the reason, but you know what? We never know. Why? There's no access to the press of the public to these interviews. Let's compare to the federal one. You can go on, you can watch them all you want on C-SPAN and CNN. Does it mean that we get less qualified applicants at the federal level? I think that's a stretch. I would commend to you, with respect to uh, the, federal pro the federal process and the appointment system, I would commend to you the uh, Federal Society paper, uh, Filibusters and the Constitution. I think you'll find it extremely fascinating in how this whole process has changed. When we talk about the U.S. Senate confirmation, I don't think our founding fathers ever envisioned what, what goes on today in the United States Senate with respect to the litmus test that that is, is applied to the applicants. Uh, we didn't even have public hearings for judges, Supreme Court judges, until uh, the early 1900s. The first applicant didn't even appear before a committee until, I think, 1935, and didn't even subject to questioning until uh, the mid-1900s. The mid uh, and now we have this constitutional gridlock uh, with the federal system and the, and, and the, the uh, advice and consent process. And, and that's what we want to adopt in Missouri. I, this, this, uh, that's what we have concerns about. I mean, Actually, the, just, just to be clear, the proposal has a mandatory up or, down, up or down vote provision. To correct that, I agree with you. It is a yeah. travesty. I'm glad you pointed that out. I mean, the, the requirement, I think, in the proposal is 60 days. Uh, the Missouri legislature also has a constitutional mandate to pass the budget by the seventh day prior to the end of the session. Does anybody know how many times they've faulted that and not met their constitutional responsibility? I mean, we're sitting here saying, oh, well, we're going to require them to do it in 60 days, so by gosh, they're going to do it. Well, let's go back over the last, uh, in my career, at least two or three times, Missouri legislature has failed its constitutional responsibility in meeting that deadline. So we're going to sit here and say, yes, they're automatically well, going to do it in 60 days. Uh, I, Randy, I, I think the difference here is, is that if the legislature doesn't act in 60 days, the appointment is final. So the legislature doesn't have the ability to put it off. Well, they're going to have to act or there's an appointment. So I, I, I would suggest that we're taking a lot for granted. I would urge the people involved to come to Jefferson City for a year or two and see what happens. Uh, take a look at HDR 49. HDR 49, uh, I, I don't know if this timing was, was uh, intentional or not, probably not, but uh, HDR 49, uh, in, in our reading, with a very minor effort by the minority party, would give uh, all of those four appointments to the next governor. Uh, that's correct, and then we can hold that governor accountable for those appointments. Well, I would then, I would then, I would then suggest. I'd uh, rather not. Think if about, you don't mind. Think about who the next governor might be, and in January of 2009, we're going to turn over carte blanche 
the commission because he will have four appointments for the seven who he will be able to hand his slip of paper to asking for those three nominees and that's what you will have and the question is so, so instead of having six democrats and one republican on the commission you'll have six democrats and one republican on the commission no, I no. no that's the way or, the math or, works. Or, well, or, or, set, or said another way, the people of Missouri, the vote of the people of Missouri doesn't count. It's the vote of the elite lawyers of the state of Missouri that counts. Well, the people of Missouri, well, it, let me remind you, the people of Missouri is who adopted this system to the elite lawyers to have this role. Woody, I, Woody, I think we let could let probably, I think we could Let me just interject for a moment. Okay. Pardon me. Uh, and let me just call, there haven't been any questions. I think uh, we all have been monopolizing this. Yep. Uh, briefly, but are there any other questions from the audience? I think you had one before. Let me just go to this gentleman. Well, I confess it's not really a question, but very, it will be brief at least. My name is Tom Alvin. I practice here in St. Louis. Uh, first of all, I'm very grateful. This is the most frank and thoughtful decision discussion on both sides that I've ever <coughs> had. Uh, we always have our people that we bring in on the pro reform, but I really appreciate the, the, the two gentlemen on my left. Uh, the one thing is, though, your client in the very bar does not engage in this frank, thoughtful discussion. They are Pollyanna, and they, they suggested a membership where we have to stay with this because the best way of getting it totally without any respect to politics. I would ask you to go back to your client and say, respect the intelligence of the members of the bar and be frank with them. I think we'll be a lot better off as a bar association. The second issue is, I think, we then say that nothing else today, that this is a political issue that reasonable people can disagree on. I wish 500,000 bucks of my bargain would be able to just have one side of the uh, debate. So that's my quick comment. I'm very grateful to you. May I just follow that up uh, with one, since I've uh, been silent here, but uh, along with my parking ticket validation, I'd like the luxury of one question, if I might, to our... our um, We're out of time, aren't we? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, my watch is fine. Um, I, I wanted to ask uh, Mr. Coase, Woody, if I might just ask you, um, <clears throat> would you agree with me uh, that, um, and, and with the American Judicature Society, uh, who has stated that the way to keep the least amount of politics in this, and Mr. Scheer also, uh, uh, is, to make, is to make it as bipartisan as possible? And, and recognizing that that is part of this effort. Uh, you know, I'm not sure whether it's true or not. I've said the most fun in politics that I've found is redistricting, which is absolutely bipartisan. Uh, so you get you know, 13 Republicans and 13 Democrats in a room, and you redistrict the Missouri. That's as bipartisan as it gets. <coughs> but it ain't anywhere like nonpartisan. Uh, and so it's a lot of fun, but there's a level of hypocrisy is zero. Everybody knows what you're in the room for. You're in the room for your party to hell with the public good, to hell with the Constitution if you can get away with it, to hell with everything, to draw on those districts for your team. And so when you, when, you know, again, conservatives are people who believe that, that hypocrisy is the, is the tribute that vice pays to virtue and that it's worthwhile charging the toll. We think there's a place in society for hypocrisy. We, we prefer a society where you think. You've got to pretend to a virtue if you don't have it. 
And we think a society is better off when you pretend to the virtue than when you don't even have to pretend. And in a purely bipartisan system, you don't even pretend to be looking after the public. It's a restraint on your action when you have to pretend. <laughs> well, I guess I, I see your eyes getting big. I don't understand what's difficult to grasp about the concept. Any any conservative writer you can find in history will tell you we've got to hold people to their pretenses, to their claims of virtue, uh, or you know, it's only the liberals who say, "Oh, let's look at reality. Let's strip away the drapery and see that we're all just animals." Well, well let's see. Alexander, I don't want to do that. Yeah, but Alexander Ham Hamilton actually put it out in the Federalist uh, Papers that the concept behind uh, the advice and consent of the Senate was to control what he called the factions, and the factions that he was talking about at the time of the two political parties, that they would, at, at the Senate level, have some canceling effect on one another. So, you know, I, and I, I'm, not ad, I'm not saying that we're going to go to the federal model. I like the federal model. But the simple plan that's up for adoption now is, I think, a, a minor tweak. But it does contain not a confirmation by the Senate of the judicial nominee, but a confirmation by the Senate of four of the commissioners. That to me also seems like one of those things, if you give the legislature able, no matter how small, in this judicial appointment process, you're going to stop at least some of the animosity that ex exists between the red building that holds the Supreme Court and the legislature on the other side of the street. And I think that's a noble endeavor. Woody, we could probably all um, resolve everything and and go, everybody go home and not have to argue about this anymore. You've been talking about how great it was when it was originally passed. If we could go back to the original plan um, that you so eloquently defend from the 1940s and put in the ability of the governor to reject an entire panel, I think we could all go home with that. Well, uh, I'll try to go back and get back to Sam's, uh, Sam's question. Um, you know, before I walked in here, uh, I was accused of, of being an opponent of reform, uh, or at least listed as an opponent of reform, and also accused of being a lawyer in the Lawyers Weekly this morning. Uh, I think it was just a, I don't know where it came from, but uh, I don't think we've Are ever suggested... Are you joining our company or running from our company? I'm not sure. <laughs> Neither. I, my best friends are, are lawyers. Uh, I don't think we've ever suggested that there isn't politics in this process. Uh, and it would be silly to do so. The question that we have to ask, the question that my clients ask themselves, and we walk through the process with them on, is what is what will be the the outcome of these changes? We're not suggesting we're standing here saying no change, but what is the outcome going to be? And to get back to Tom's comment, if we could go back to the process of 1940 under the Missouri Court Plan, we'd be better off. My contention is, if we go back to the process that was envisioned by Hamilton in the late 17 and 1800s, then we might be better off too, because we wouldn't have the partisan bickering that we have in the Senate confirmations. I mean, we talk about Senate confirmation. Uh, I would remind this group that the Missouri Senate was deadlocked on a filibuster not three weeks ago on 33 appointments, gubernatorial appointments. And there was a forced vote on each one individually, which is, that doesn't mean anything to you, except the fact that we had a filibuster on gubernatorial appointments. And why did we do it? We did it because the Senate called three or four 
previous questions in the year 2007, which terribly upset one of the parties. And they came in and said, okay, we're going to do this, and we're going to hold these appointments hostage until we get something. And what did they demand for it? They demanded 14 bills, one per senator, one per Democratic senator. We had the same process happen on an individual appointment. Now, my question to you is, if we go to the Senate confirmation process, admittedly that it, it, it's tweaked in, in 49, but if we people have talked about going to the Senate confirmation process, what's going to be the cost? Let's, let's, let's couple that with the fact that we're about to again repeal the campaign finance limits in Missouri. They were repealed. They were reinstated because of, of a flawed procedure. So what's going to be the cost of a Supreme Court position to a governor? Openness, is it going to be $100,000? Is it going to be $50,000? And then when the confirmations get to the Senate, what's going to be the trade? Are we going to trade a Senate confirmation for a gun vote, an abortion bill getting to the floor, the Democrats sitting down on seven other appointments, that's the reality you have to face. That's what I invite all of you to come to Jefferson City and witness. I mean, it's pretty, can, it's, it's can pretty we, nice. Can we, ask, can we ask one of the, we have a commissioner here. I, got, I did get swapped off the Eighth Circuit, by the way. I got swapped off for a vote on Iran Contra from a Republican senator. Uh, two Republican senators, actually, from North Dakota and Minnesota. And we bought their votes by giving them, President Reagan did, by giving them a judge from the North. And, and taking the Missouri nominee who he originally wanted, which is me, withdrawing my name. And I consider it a damn good trade uh, to, to have gotten him those two votes on Iran-Contra when he so badly needed them, but that's the kind of swapping you get into when you inject the legislature into the process. So, so we have a commissioner here. Would you have mind to have gone through gubernatorial uh, appointment confirmation by the Senate? Would I have minded? Yeah, would you have minded? If they said you have to go through Senate confirmation. That's fine. We have uh, one other question. Yes, sir. Uh, the panel referred to the Federal Assembly to uh, the 
the voters in Missouri didn't accept the merit plan. <coughs> the voters in Missouri sort of told them the three of the members on the commission are going to be members of the court itself. I don't think they would have gone along with it. But once you get in there, everybody I think will accept that the status quo is very easy to maintain. It takes a lot to take up the status quo. But to say that it's, it's the way it was and that's what everybody followed, that's just, it, it drives me crazy. Because if you actually look around, out of all the states in the United States, Missouri stands alone in lawyer domination, we get our domination of the selection, review, and disciplinary process and subject. If they act like they're the leader, they're the followers. They're the last to realize they're the problem. Any comment on that? Well, I'd say you're the of all the gripes you're making, the one that interests me is the claim that the court gets force and will by an integrated bar. If that's true, your argument's with the integrated bar. Uh, it's not with the nonpartisan court plan. It's with the integrated bar. The people didn't grant the court the integrated bar. They did it themselves under a. I understand that. If you. We have a system in this state which you don't have at the federal level, and we need to remember this in 50 judges. We have initiatives, we have referendums, and there are things, plus retention elections, none of which you have at the federal level. We have ways to get at these judges. I was in California when Rose Bird and two other judges were voted out of office. I was out there on business about four days a week, every week. And I sat through and watched them get defeated. If you don't, if you want to do away with the integrated bar in this state, uh, there are a couple different ways to do it. One of them is litigation, but the other one is the initiative or referendum. And I, be, I, believe, I believe that there is a bill that's been drafted but not yet introduced yeah. to do away with the integrated bar. Um, so if you want to do it, so your gripes with the integrated bar, not with the plan. It can be done by a responsible Supreme Court itself. If they create it, they can remove it. They could. Is there, uh, is there one other? I have a question, and it's uh, reminds me of something you said a little earlier, Woody, and that is, I thought the motto of the state of Missouri was the will of the people shall be the supreme law. Yep, that's what it said. And yet when I heard you speaking, it seemed as if the people shouldn't really be so involved. Because it, it just seems to me that the Bar Association really is a trade organization. We act in our own best interest. What you said about the, the air of legitimacy is what I really heard. It, I think it's, it's a fraud because whether it's MATA or MODEL, whoever it might be, the Lawyers Association is going to advance the lawyers' benefits, not the people. So, a question posed is, one, what is the, the, the strenuous objection that, that seems to evoke near religious fervor in tinkering with the bar with the Missouri plan at all. It seems as if my Missouri bar, who I, and I've spoken to someone about this, my elected representative, my Republican form of government, didn't ask me before they hired you, before they took one side of this debate. Yet it's almost as if it's a religious you can't tinker with it at all, not even a little bit. Not even say to adjust it, to say, take take the judge off the panel. Make the commission a larger group of people so it's not controlled by the lawyers. Let me add one element to that, too, because 
I think your, I think your comment is interesting. But it goes beyond that. And I think <clears throat> some of the people in the room, in this room have experienced it, uh, directly firsthand. And that is ad hominem arguments. As a matter of fact, we've heard some ad hominem argument today. And that wasn't what I was doing, hopefully. That's not what my... No, opinion. and I didn't, I didn't mean that. I just meant that <clears throat> in any reasoned debate, it should be a, a debate on the merits about the substantive issue or issues involved. And not calling people political hacks and not calling people disgruntled office seekers and not, uh, say, and not saying about the dead that they were disliked in their day and that's what motivated them to uh, hold the positions without regard for the merits or demerits of those positions. And what I would like to see is that <clears throat> from this moment forward, uh, and, and I guess maybe I'm being uh, Pollyannish about this, but what I would like to see is for the debate to continue as a debate and, and never mind the ad hominem arguments. And I would, I would be interested to know what the gentleman on my right feel about and whether they would agree with me as honorable men, which I know they are, uh, that there should be no ad hominem arguments in this. It should be a debate about the issues. Well, I disagree with you as to Judge Welliver. Judge Welliver is cited as an authority. That's the inverse of an ad hominem argument. You drag in somebody, and because of the authority of his position, we are impliedly supposed to respect what he says, rather than looking in and analyzing what he says. When you do that, you open that person's authority up to question. Right? You can't advance the authority and then not let me question it. Well, I question it in the case of Judge Welliver very specifically, not for the reason Randy said, but for another reason. What provoked all of that in Welliver was that for the first time in anybody's memory, Chip Bond and the Republicans had been elected governor. And we started getting Republicans on these panels, and they were going to get on the Supreme Court. And it drove Welliver, who was an implacable Democrat, right up the wall. He couldn't stand it. And he and Al Rendland, who was a justice partisan Republican, and was sitting on the Supreme Court, and the two of them got at loggerheads. And for a number of years, it fouled up the jurisprudence of that court, because the two of them were so personally at loggerheads. And well, let me Judge Welliver was irate about these Republicans getting on there and about the fact that, that Judge Rendland was, was part of that process, and he was upset about it. And that's where this came from. All right, Woody, let me, let me just respond to that briefly. That's not ad hominem. That's, that's a, that's well, a I, questioning the citation. With all due respect, it, it is ad hominem, but it's an ad hominem with an addendum on it that, that goes to uh, an explanation as to why it's an exception. Right. Now, here's, here's uh, what I wanted to just add very briefly to that. The, 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 uh, the whole argument about uh, whether it came from uh, Judge Welliver or from any, anybody in this room or anybody else, about uh, <clears throat> the uh, uh, the political uh, back and forth of this, um, and by that I'm I, I'm alluding to something I, I think it was that you said about the 12 years of uh, Republican uh, influence, uh, uh, the tilt from that, and then the and then the uh, the, the 12 years following of Democrat uh, uh, tilt. Uh, to my way of thinking, and perhaps you disagree with this. The solution to the problem of, of <clears throat> serious and, and uh, uh, extreme, uh, what I call mood swings of judicial philosophy, which if they were manifest in a, in a human being, would probably require the prescription of Prozac, isn't fixed by, in my humble opinion, 
by keeping that system in place and saying as a as a rationale, well, it goes back and forth, so it's even, and we're all even, and and that's great. It is by. It's not what I said. Well, I, it's, it's what the I mean. implication that I'm drawing from the inference that I'm drawing from what you said. Well, first of all, I, I said very explicitly, I don't think there's been a mood swing worthy of Prozac at all. That when the court went to the right after 12 years of Republican judges, it didn't go that far to the right. And when it's gone left after 12 years of Democratic judges, it hasn't gone very far left. And I think the proof of that is in looking at the cases cited in the Federalist uh, Society study done by uh, uh, Professor Eckhart. Uh, the cases were cited for extreme, you know, the Shamo case. I represent plaintiff's lawyers, and we're in trying to get that decision reversed by an act of the legislature, along with the defense bar. We think it was a mistake. Gee, a court made a mistake, and now the plaintiffs and defense bars are both in there trying to get it. One more. We make. redefined public employees. Now, I don't like that decision. I don't like the outcome of that, the results of that decision one bit. The plain language of the Missouri Constitution is, in the state of Missouri, employees have the right to collectively bargain. They did not exempt public employees. And, and the if reason being is because in the locution of the time, you would have said public sector employees. And that, that, that is even beyond question. If you read the, the plain on that, language and, of that thing says employees. But, period. you know, it, it's... Uh, the uh, activism was in inserting the word public where it did not exist. Well, not well actually, I'll, I'll leave that to the, pe- to the folks out there who really want to look at it, but I think the dissent is particularly highlighting in there, and that is extreme activist decision, as is, let's go into the criminal law. Cases, and I'll think of the name of the case in a second. But this uh, this Supreme Court it looks for excuses to throw out death penalty convictions because of their personal will. And I'll make that as an observation. Go back and look at the cases. But any fair observation of the cases says that that's the case. Now, I am personally opposed to the death penalty. I don't like it. I don't like it in application. But the recourse in a democratic government is to do what New Jersey did and you put it on the, the ballot and say, Missouri, there's no more death penalty. It's not creating artificial barriers disguised in ineffective assistance of counsel as a reason not to have the death penalty. The, 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 to, to say the sweeping conclusion that there isn't judicial activism, you know, fine, that, that's the, you can measure that by the size of the chancellor's shoe. I would argue that there has been extreme cases. You say there hasn't. But, uh, but there can be reasonable grounds of disagreement. But one thing I would like to echo in, in what uh, Sam has said is, I would actually ask the folks here who, uh, Woody, I know that you have an enormous, tremendous amount of respect for people on this panel, people generally in, in the profession, and Randy, I think you do a great job for your clients as well. But uh, being the recipient of the ad hominem, I would like to urge that you guys leave and get out front and say, this is about ideas. It's not about attacking people personally. You don't, you don't gain anything by doing this other than serving their heads on the plate. But I certainly don't like to get a call from a committee saying that uh, some folks have been calling you hacks out there. Let's just keep it about the issue. Let's debate the substance. I'll tell you like what, I'm the one who has to sit in front of the committee and be told that because I'm a lawyer and because we're lawyers, all we're doing is looking after the lawyers. i got to hear that from Representative Hunter. He sits there and berates me with that stuff. I've, I've been the butt of a few ad hominems in the course of this thing myself. And I've not used them against anybody except for well, the late Judge Wellover. Let me, let me just suggest to you, in response to what you just said, 
I don't believe that that's an ad hominem argument in any way. I think it is a it is a fair and and hopefully constructive criticism of the of the actions of a segment of the bar. And it's a, it's a, it's a it, it goes to the systemic problem, the fundamental flaw in the system. And hopefully it'll change, and uh, and the, the plaintiff's bar can be relieved of its grievous burden of having to decide who the judges are going to be in the future. Well, the the actual the rest of the argument was that Shear here and his organization and his organization defense lawyers were really just in cahoots with the plaintiff's lawyers because it upped the defense fees too when you got plaintiff oriented. But you notice none none of us ever said that or ever will say that. Well, what I'm saying what I'm saying is this. what I'm saying to you is that ad hominem arguments run both ways. That's all I'm saying. Well, but it's no argument to say that since they since they may be interpreted to run both ways, in your opinion, that the initial ad hominem argument of calling somebody a, a name that has nothing to do with the argument is wrong. It, it certainly is. I, I haven't done it, I don't believe. And if I have, I apologize. But I don't think I've done it. No, sir. Except and when you brought up well, no one has accused you of doing it. As, a, as an authority for something. Well, we're, I knew him. Not anymore. <laughs> let me let me uh, just ask if there are any other questions. Yeah. If we have time, I have one more question, sure. uh, particularly for Randy. I've learned a little bit about uh, the proposed, actually now it's the new compromise regarding um, the transparency, um, kind of opening up things a little bit. Unfortunately, even anti-reform organizations such as the Kansas City Star have said, you know, these reforms just do not go far enough. Um, you know, you say, okay, here's when the meeting's going to be, but you don't open it up to the media at all. Um, so I was wondering if you gentlemen, actually Woody too, had any particular response to that criticism that I, even with the reforms, I would love terms, to, okay, I would love to address that. Uh, I think it's important to, to, to understand that the Missouri Press Association uh, has been down there lobbying on particularly Charlie Shields' bill, which would uh, open up the applications, open up all the background, open up the interviews, open up the votes. Everything. Most of, I think all of my, all of my groups, and I don't know about Woody's groups, we have all said we are very, very comfortable with the commissions complying with all the provisions of Chapter 610. Just like every other commission, just like every other political subdivision, just like every other body does in the state, that the commissions can be subject to the provisions of 610. The catch is that the rules by which the the, the the appellate judicial commissions operate are specifically granted by a constitutional provision to the Supreme Court. So there there's a substantial legal argument as to whether the legislature can pass uh, House Bill 968, which would subject the commissions to that plus all these other things that they want to subject them to. I'll get to the issue of that in a moment. In the fall, uh, a group of us said, our clients don't have a problem with compliance with 610. We actually went to the court and said, why don't you adopt these provisions and uh, by rule, because that's how it really needs to be done, so we don't set up this, this, this conflict between the legislature and the Supreme Court. Supreme Court said, Great idea. We'll do that. We'll take the provisions of 610, and actually they went beyond that, and put that in the rule, and that's what Judge Stiff announced in her State of Judiciary uh, presentation, I think, on February 5th, if I'm not mistaken. We're very comfortable with that. 
Jennifer, I would, I would suggest it doesn't, it doesn't apply to Sunshine Law. That could be, as a matter of fact, four judges of the Missouri Supreme Court could say it applies tomorrow and it would apply. And this, you know, uh, we, we can just some understanding. Well, I'm sorry, Bill, I didn't get that. No, it's Sunshine Law. The, sun, the Missouri Supreme Court, four judges on the Missouri Supreme Court, four of the seven, could vote and say the Sunshine Law shall apply to the appellate judicial commissions. We wouldn't have a, well, this part applies, that part doesn't apply. I think, and I was, and I appreciate you saying that as I stand up to clapping, absolutely, any step in the direction of more openness, well, I will applaud, but, but I just don't see there's any, yeah, a small, I, I agree, a small step forward. There's Actually, no good I, reason why. Well, but, but let me get, let me get to the issue, though. I mean, that, that's what the rule is intended to do. It's to have the commission subject to the substantial provisions of 610 and mirror it as well as it can. Now, the, the, the issues that go beyond that, are whether the applications are open, whether the interviews are open, and whether the votes are open. Now, I would contend that if you really talk, if you if you want to talk about what the public's interested in, my suggestion would be that the public is much more interested in knowing who the applicants are for their local school superintendent or applicants for their local public hospital administrator than they are the applicants for the Missouri Supreme Court. And they'd be much more interested in seeing those interviews. But do they get to see them? No. Applications are closed under Chapter 610. So the question becomes, why should this be any different because of the impact it potentially has on the, on the applicant? And the answer to that is that is, that is one of the reasons that we have taken, we have a concern about that. The states that have, I, I think I would also invite you to take a look at some of the states that have open interview processes and ask them how their interviews go. Because in some of those states where they have them, the interviews last five minutes. So, so the answer to the question is the difference between one and the other is one is, for all intents and purposes, a lifetime appointment to a third political branch of the government. And the contrast to that is the other one serves at the pleasure of another elected board. That's the difference between a school board and, and a judge. We're not asking to have the judge let us know uh, all their applicants for their clerk of courts. We're not asking them for their clerk that that uh, that that helps them in their chambers. We're not asking them for their uh, judicial assistance. We're asking for the public official as a lifetime appointment that to be open to the public. The the second point that that uh, one thinks of when when they certainly think about well what's the fear of this openness? I, I still don't understand. I, I just don't understand why the applications which for a federal judge. They're all open. They're public. You can go look up John Roberts' response to the 135 questions of uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee. I the, personally the, think 135 questions is absurd. And the, if there was someone here that actually did that to a Supreme Court judge, I might take issue with what he had done. Uh, well, the, but, well, the governor just uh, did that. I mean, the governor had 110 questions that he sent out. Yeah, there's not, a substantial difference here. Uh, the John Roberts was the appointment of the president. He was the appointment of the president. Under Missouri law, the only application you get to see under Chapter 610 is the, is the individual that is hired or appointed by the governor. I might remind you that we have, a, I think we have a commission member here. As soon as the commission makes its decision of its panel of three, that is public. That goes beyond Chapter 610 today. But that's the ultimate gatekeeping rule. I mean, what you're saying is, is, is trust us, um, 
that we're doing everything behind these closed doors and we're going to come out with the right three. What I'm saying oh. is, I trust you so much, I just want to take a look at it. Well, but, I, but you I don't see what's the, the problem? You do not see the applications of federal level. When I was considered for the Eighth Circuit, nobody knew I was considered for the Eighth Circuit until I got all the way through the Justice Department, all the way through the White House. Right, so the they, Freedom of Information... Sub Rosa vetted my name on Capitol Hill on a Friday and, and two judges up north, didn't, or two senators up north wanted one, somebody from up there. And the Freedom of Information Act corrected all of that. And now every federal judge, every application and the responses is available. You can even go online to the DOJ's website in the U.S. courts and find it. Oh, let me tell you something. I was picked before there was ever any application written out. Well, <laughs> here, and here today, today in Missouri, the rule is you get to see the applications of the three panelists going to the governor. The new rule. Yes, sir. Yes. If no one has any further, uh, thank you all for coming, and those of you who are survivors, and uh, we'll see you, see you again.